If you have a copy of God's Word, could you take it and turn to Luke chapter 13? Luke chapter 13, you see from the sign behind me, the signs on the screen. Our series is going to involve an encounter with Jesus who... uh, all the guys led us really, really well this morning in worship. So this is a season where, if you haven't seen them already, you're going to see the school buses going and coming, lots of students and teachers going back to school, and undoubtedly, there will be some students in the next few weeks, months, that are going to learn how to write their first research paper. Some teacher, blessed teacher that they are, is going to give them this particular person or let them choose, and they're going to write a research paper about a person. We know, we know how those first attempts go, don't we? Uh, something like, this is how it goes. Abraham Lincoln was born in a log cabin. He was born in 1809. He was the 16th president. He was president during the Civil War. He was killed at Ford's Theater. Abraham Lincoln was a very famous president. Right, that's the way it's going to go. We all had to start somewhere. That's, that's the way mine sounded. That's the way yours sounded. There's something very different when someone takes to writing a biography where they're, where they're very skillful, where they've kind of honed their craft. So for me, when I read David McCullough or I read Laura Hillenbrand, and I read them write about a particular historical character. I mean, it comes alive. It's not just the mere facts about a person's life. And, and a good biographer is going to dig back into conversations and records. They're going to look at correspondence. They're going to dig into those things, and they're going to do more than tell facts. They're going to tell a story. So much so that sometimes when I've read a really good biography, like at the end, you know, you know that everybody dies, but it's, it's almost hard to get to that place because you've become attached not to the facts, but to the person, to the story. And there's kind of a sad note when you're coming to the end of the book. We have been given an incredible privilege especially in in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to have biographies of Jesus' life. They're theological biographies. But they don't just tell us the facts of Jesus did this, then he did this, then he did that, then he did this, then he did this, then he did that. Every one of those books draws into a story. You see, an encounter with Jesus, every one of those draw us into meetings that Jesus has, and we read the words that he said, and we get to have have a little lens of what it means to have an encounter with Jesus. God willing, over the next several weeks, I want us to look at specifically encounters people had with Jesus. And today I wanted to begin with Luke chapter 13. I'm going to ask Jim Showers to come and read uh, Luke 13, and he'll begin in verse 10 and read to verse 21, this particular encounter with Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, Luke records this. 
Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sold in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And he said again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in her three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Encounters with Jesus, each of these encounters that we come across, this is kind of just by way of orienting ourselves over the next several weeks. I think if we've read scripture a lot, which I would imagine a lot of folks in here have, it's easy to kind of have a standard template for these kind of stories. Okay, so we got the person in need, kind of got the, the template, and you got Jesus, and then he heals, and then we move on. What I'm going to ask you not to do over the next several weeks is to have this like boilerplate template that actually could prevent you from appreciating the details that are recorded because each of these individuals had a name. Each of these individuals mattered to the Lord. So Jesus isn't doing generic miracles here. He's doing them for specific people. So let's make sure we, we dial into the details. Let's look at each individual in detail. Let's look at the words Jesus said to each person. Let's look at what happens in the end. And let's try as much as we can to, to understand the emotion in the story and not just get the, just get the facts. Let's have our own encounter with Jesus, even as we read uh, of these encounters with Jesus, because truly we believe Jesus is still alive and he's still wanting to have an encounter with people today. So this particular woman, it it said in Luke chapter 13 that she has a disabling spirit. That's not a medical condition. And what it tells me is they didn't know what condition she had. We're not in medical terminology. And so for 18 years, imagine this woman, I mean, likely she went to a doctor, likely she hoped for this or that or whatever cure, likely she hoped for these things, but she, she didn't find them. And so we're kind of left with, well, it seems like you have a condition. You know? Well, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't really seem to help anything year after year after year of this lady dealing with it. And particularly this, this disability, 
where it says all of her public life would be impacted. I mean, so she, she cannot stand up straight. And so what is that going to mean for year one, year five, year 10, year 18? It means that everywhere she goes, everybody notices her. And there's some sort of stigma likely attached to that. It's certainly in a place where, where people maybe thought, I wonder what she did for that to happen. And it would not be that hard for this dear lady who has this disability almost to become an object rather than a person. And so she comes into the synagogue that day, probably with a severe lack of hope and feeling like, here I am in front of everybody, looking like the the person that's just different from everybody else. Unlike others in the Bible, In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a lot of people came to Jesus. They approached Jesus. Here you don't find her approaching Jesus. You find her just going to the synagogue. What you find is Jesus moving toward her. Jesus sees her. We're not not told whether she has faith or not. We're not told, you know, wow, she was just a, a really a fantastic lady in the community. We're not told any of that. We don't know. She's at the synagogue and Jesus sees her. And I do have to wonder, would we, would we see her? There's such a contrast. So this, this woman who comes, there's such a contrast in what Jesus does and how the synagogue ruler responds. And I think we can learn a lot from this story by, by looking at that contrast, by looking and hearing and seeing the words that, of Jesus and then looking at the, the ruler and then looking how everybody else responds. And in Jesus, we find two things going together that often don't go together. But in the kingdom of God, they do go together. And, and what we find with Jesus is it is clear that he cares deeply for this lady. And it is clear he has authority. You see, we don't always find care and authority going going together. There's times someone will have all the authority in the world. They can they speak and stuff happens. The disappointing part is they could care less about anybody else and they're only in it for themselves. Oh, we we know that person. And then there's sometimes the the kindest people who always care, who always have time to listen. It's just they don't they don't have any authority to affect any change. But Jesus, Jesus has all the authority in the world. And he cares deeply. How how do we know he cares? Verse 12 says he sees her. That isn't just narrative detail. It's telling us he, he lays on, he notices her. And then it says he calls for this woman into his presence. And I'm not sure what she would be feeling at that moment, but likely intimidated and then he speaks to this woman a kind greeting. He, he doesn't address her by name. Perhaps her name had not been spoken, but he, he says, lady or dear, dear woman, as he brings her closer to his presence. And then he speaks words that heal her. And then he touches this woman. And in that, I mean, there's no thought anymore that she's unclean or keep your distance. Now he has touched, he has embraced her. He cares deeply. It's like those uh, human interest stories. So you're watching a a sports broadcast and then they take a five-minute little vignette to show why you should really care about this person and their story. And it's like all that times a million is on display as Jesus could just go through business as usual at a synagogue on a Sabbath. 
But instead he notices her. And he calls her. And he speaks to her. And he lays hands on her. The miracle itself is an act of care. If you noticed in verse 12, it's an interesting word that Jesus says. He doesn't say, woman, you are healed from your disability. He says, woman, you are freed. And anybody who heard that would have thought, that's an odd way to use that word. Because generally when freedom was spoken of, it was the freedom because someone was enslaved and they had become free. Or, or someone had this massive debt and someone decided to forgive them of that debt. And so we talk about the slaves going free and someone who had debt is now free. But it's odd that a miracle would be referred to. It's, it's one of the only times in all of scripture where a miracle is referred to as freedom. But Jesus knows, Jesus knows what's going on in the heart of that woman. And that, that woman doesn't just doesn't just feel disabled in that moment. She feels bound. She feels imprisoned. And Jesus knows where, where she's living for those 18 years. And he speaks this word. Woman, you are, you are set free. You don't have any bondage anymore. You don't have any debt anymore. What an amazing thing. The authority of Jesus Authority, so much so that 18 years of one thing, and then Luke says that immediately she was freed. Immediately she was healed. Luke likes that word immediately when it comes to Jesus. And I think it's just to remind us of his authority. He speaks, and there isn't even really a process going on. It's immediately things change. Jesus is doing the work of God. He even recognizes that what he had just done in speaking and freeing this woman was actually an act of spiritual warfare. And he had authority over Satan, had authority over uh, this disabling spirit. And, and he is acting in authority. So we see this beautiful, beautiful thing. Jesus cares and he has authority. These things always go together with Jesus. You know, sometimes there are desirable characteristics and undesirable characteristics that go with the person. So sometimes you say, well, you can invite them over, but you know they're a talker. They're going to talk, 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 talk. We just know that, right? Or, yeah, you know, we can ask, ask her, but you know she complains all the time. Or you know she's stuck on herself. Or you know we'll have to hear about whatever. You know, you get her, you get him, and this is going to come along. And I think sometimes we need to recognize something very important about Jesus. With all the lavish grace that he shows, the amazing grace that Jesus shows, you also get, you cannot separate out his full authority. So it's not hard for us to accept Jesus saying, don't judge, unless you want to be judged. We say, isn't Jesus just advocating non-judgmentalism, good for Jesus, but then we recognize, oh, but he's the full authority as the judge. He is the one who who is the judge, who will judge for eternity. Lavish grace, amazing grace, full authority come together. We look at the synagogue ruler and we see such contrast. I ask you, do you think the synagogue ruler really cared about the lady in his presence that day? We can't judge hearts, but we can listen to words. Did, Did you see what happened there? So Jesus... Jesus doesn't ask for like, what's the proper protocol for helping this woman? What do we need to do? What steps do we need to follow? Jesus heals her. And that's what makes the synagogue ruler indignant, Scripture says. 
in verse 14, he says to the people, so notice he's not talking to Jesus. Imagine Jesus has done this miraculous work. It's almost as if maybe even body language, his posture changes and he kind of turns his back a little bit on Jesus and says, now, now people, I need to tell you something. If, if you need a miracle, Sunday to Friday are the days you come for that. And this has just happened, but, I, but for clarification, next time anybody needs to be healed or anything like that, let's not do that on the Sabbath. We got that, everybody? I mean, it's, it's almost comical as he's trying to fire a shot across the bow of Jesus, but he's doing so in kind of a, a sideways manner. Let's make sure we follow the rules when it comes to getting over these things that have troubled us for 18 years. He's indignant. What's been shown is his lack of care and lack of authority. Someone has said it well. The the clash with authority here is not over the rules, but over who rules. It was very clear who ruled that day in the synagogue. So he was ruler enough to call a foul over protocols, but 18 years and nothing had been done or could be done. He kind of chalks it up. If, If we've got to do something, then let's do these kinds of things. And he doesn't even recognize that he's just seen God at work. He's had a front row seat of God at work. Such a different response. The synagogue ruler takes offense and and the woman in verse 13, she glorifies God. Well, of course she does. She says, God be praised. She walks out of that synagogue praising God that day. You see the contrast in the story. The, The synagogue ruler has like made it a point, right? Kind of trying to move Jesus out of the picture and say, let, let me say what ought to be done here. And Jesus takes that like, well, let's, let's talk about what ought to be done. And he gives clarity on what ought to be done. And notice exactly what Jesus says. And, and then notice the response. Jesus calls them out in verse 15. And he addresses them, you hypocrites. And I don't know. I don't think anybody in the room likes to be called that. I don't think any one of us like to be called that, especially in public. No thanks on that. Instantly, an awkward situation gets very uncomfortable. And, and I would imagine if you got called out like that, your, your blood would be boiling, you would be frustrated. But Jesus says, what's going on here in this synagogue on this particular Sabbath day? We're acting here. It, it's a charade. It's a religious charade. We got our mask on and we're acting like we really care about people, but we really don't care enough to where we're blowing, blowing the whistle, calling fouls on, on on these areas of protocol, and we don't really care about this woman. You're a hypocrite. Jesus says, you want to talk about what ought to be done? What ought to be done, the mandate here, is that this woman should be set free. The simple logic he uses, doesn't he, in what Jim read a moment ago. Let's talk about an, uh, an ox or a donkey. And if they want water and they're tied up, what are you going to do? You're going to untie them and let them free so that they can have a sip of water one day. And we've got a woman here that's been bound for 18 years. Where is the care? And and even Jesus presses deeper and sometimes we don't see it on first reading, but if we read it again, we, we begin to see it. Jesus says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus says, this is totally the appropriate day to do this. 
Why would he say that? It's interesting to me in Deuteronomy chapter 5 when the, the Ten Commandments are given for the second time. We have this in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. But then notice kind of skipping down to verse 15. Here's the whole context of the Sabbath. This is why Jesus would say it's totally appropriate. And I actually have a mandate to do things like this on the Sabbath day. Because you ought to remember, you remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Because of this, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath day isn't merely about rest. It's also about freedom and deliverance. And, and, and Jesus has read Deuteronomy and he knows this passage and he connects those and says, can we think of a better thing to signify the Sabbath? Can we think of something to better picture coming out of Egypt and being free from slavery? Can we have a mandate to do things like this, particularly on the Sabbath. Jesus says, I have a mandate to do this, but Jesus is also obedient to his mission. He, he would say, not only should things like this be done, but I actually, I actually am on mission to do these things. Luke 4 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I see this woman with a disability and my mission is for, for her and for people like her. She is a daughter of Abraham. I am on mission to release these people, to restore people particularly the sons and daughters of Abraham. I am on mission for those who are Jews, and I'm not stopping there, but I am, I'm spreading out my love and care to the whole world. Such a polarizing response to Jesus. And we've got opponents who were put to shame. They're angry. In verse 17, we've got, we got the crowd who, who knows what they're thinking, but they're thinking, ah, it's kind of nice when those who think they're all-powerful get it stuck out stuck to him a little bit. Good for Jesus. Glad he told it like it was that day. Maybe they believe more. I'm sure the emotion wasn't any less than that. They're rejoicing over all the glorious things done by him. Luke connects a couple parables, a couple stories that are analogies that let us kind of compare. And so Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is like this, this tiny seed that grows into this huge tree with room for lots of birds to land. What, what, is, what does he mean by that? Or this woman who takes a, a few measures of, of leaven, puts it in a, a lump of dough, and the whole thing's affected. What, what, what is he saying about those things? Why tell those stories? Something small, almost invisible, imperceptible, and becomes something massive. I mean, what is he saying? I think he's reminding us of something. Jesus doesn't have to do like a feeding of 5,000 hungry people to be the God who is authoritative and the God who cares. And there's this, there's this synagogue in probably what was a little town. And there's one woman who probably a lot of society didn't pay attention to. And Jesus says, you want to see the kingdom of God? It's like this little bitty mustard seed. But it grows and it grows. And everybody knew a, a, mustard, a mustard bush would just be like a little scraggly, scrawny thing. And he says, not when the kingdom of God comes. It's actually this full tree. 
And this little act of deliverance here, it's like those three measures of, of leaven that go in the flour and, and it begins to expand and the whole thing's impacted. One woman freed on that particular day says something powerful and that's Messiah has come. And the world will never be the same. What Jesus is doing for her, setting her free, it's exactly, it's exactly what he desired to do for all of Israel. It's exactly what he desires to do for the world. We have it in a, a, a little miniature picture. Even when you don't perceive like, wow, I, I had no idea God was at work. It seemed like a disturbance at a synagogue one day. You said more is going on than you realize. This lady had her encounter with Jesus. But what about yours? Like, I, th- I think it would short sell this story if we read and kind of looked at it, but we didn't hold it up to a mirror and go, what does this say about me? What do I need to do to not just let this lady have her encounter with Jesus, but what do I need to do? How do I need to respond? And and I, I think this story will press us. I think we can take away a few things. And I think one of the ways this story presses on me is that I need to regularly acknowledge who Jesus is. And by acknowledge, I don't mean just give like mental assent to some words or some thoughts or some theories. I need to believe and trust and accept Jesus for all he said he was. This, this Jesus who shows up with a deep heart of care and shows up with complete authority. I need to recognize that that is him. I, I look at a room filled with people and I, I would say, my guess is there's a lot of good people in this room. What I, what I think we need to do is ask another question, not just whether we're good people or trying to do our best or try, trying to be someone helpful and trying to love people as well as we can. I think we need to come to grips with we need Jesus whether we consider ourselves good people, okay people, not so good people. We need to encounter him and acknowledge who he is. This God who shows amazing grace. Maybe you see him in that way. You acknowledge, oh, Jesus is a wonderful person. He's very important to me. But you've never really seen the authoritative side of Jesus. Really, he has demands on me for my school year? Really? For the way I treat my neighbors? For the way I treat my kids? For the way I treat my parents? He, he makes demands in that sort of way? Maybe we need to get a glimpse of acknowledging who he is and seeing him for who he is. Or maybe you have no problem with religion, with Christianity, with God, with Jesus, seeing all the authority, but you wonder, could he show grace? Could he show grace to me? Could he show care to me? Could he, would he really be that interested in me? And so we, we kind of use this story as, an, as a kind of a pathway to our own encounter with Jesus where we see he's filled with grace and he's filled with authority. What should we do? What can you do? You can trust in the greatest expression of his grace in life, in his life and in his death, giving you the forgiveness of sins. You can trust in his authority and power as he's risen from the dead to give you new life. You can begin a life of following him because whoever loves him does what he says. Say, Lord, show me the way. I want to do what you want me to do. I recognize your complete grace and your full authority. Acknowledge who Jesus is. I think this story presses deeper and I actually want to want to speak particularly to those who call Ogletown their church home. I'm, I'm glad for it, anybody and everybody else to listen in. But those who call Ogletown your church home, 
I want us to notice something else about this story, and that is, when we take this story to heart, we will notice who Jesus notices. So again, I'm glad to speak to everybody. I'm glad especially to speak to those who call Ogletown their church home. Do we notice who Jesus notices? Do we see the people? Do we listen to them? Do we try to understand their story? Do we move toward them? Is our congregation known for like a group of people that move toward others? I think it's just a desperate need of our church right now. Speaking as pastor, I think it's a desperate need for Ogletown right now to move toward people, to notice who Jesus would notice and to move toward them just as he did. I say that because there are a lot of people that are, are coming to our church. They're visiting our church. They're coming for their first time, their second time, their fourth time, their fifth time. And I'm confident many more will come. By God's grace, I think lots will come and they're looking for something serious. They're, they're not looking for, for fortune cookie sermons and they're not looking for spiritual gimmicks that just make them feel good about themselves. They're, they're looking for answers to some of the bigger questions in life. They're, they're bringing their questions and pain and struggle and ambition and plans and desires. And they may not even realize it right now, that person that will show up in October, but what they are looking for is an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus is, in one way of speaking, invisible. They're not going to sit next to him, behind him, in front of him, in their seat, but they, they may sit next to you. And, and are we going to walk in those doors, kind of going through our drill, getting our worship guide, finding our seat, not talking to anybody? Or are we going to open our eyes to the opportunities we have to notice who Jesus would notice? We come needing healing and hope and freedom. And what I'm confident is, Ogletown will never be the answer for all those people. But Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is. I think people are looking for, for people, not perfect people, but, but someone who could become a friend who will love them exactly like Jesus called us to do. On our wall out there, it says, we want to be this family that encounters Christ and this family where we can experience community, where we can embrace a calling together. But it will take, like Ogletown, it will take all hands on deck for us to meet the people that God is sending our way. It is a huge privilege that God sends these people our way. And so this is what I know. I know many of you feel very new to our church family. Like you've only been here 10 years, so you're just new around here, right? Or maybe you say, I've only been here like 10 weeks, 10 months. But I guarantee you someone within about five yards of you has only been here for a week or two or three or four. And when when will we take it on on ourselves? And I, I, I know the excuses. I mean, I've lived in church a long time. I know sometimes it's nice to just come in and sit. And sometimes it's nice, like I got burned out at the previous church. And so now I just got to want to have a, a lower commitment. I, I understand all that. And again, I'm talking to our church family. And I, I understand those that feel like, you know what, Curtis, I'm a little bit more of an introvert than an extrovert. And I just know this, God can use you in all of your introverted ways to make someone feel, someone feel comfortable. And someone feel like they, they may just have a friend here. Could you open your home and invite someone to dinner? Could you do that? Could you, 
Could you go out to eat after church one Sunday and invite someone? Could you linger? Could you linger here for 10 minutes after the service talking to someone who doesn't know anyone here? Or every week you've got something to do? Every week. Could you find that time? Could you find time to come 10 minutes early and not go immediately to your seat, but to look for who you may not know? Could we risk the embarrassment? And I, I, I know this embarrassment. Risk the embarrassment of, of greeting someone as if they're a first-time guest only to find out they've gone here 25 years. And that's no fun to anybody. And that's awkward and uncomfortable. Could we risk that with the, with the off chance that person may not have been here for 25 years? And maybe looking for someone to show them the kindness of Christ? Could you extend an invitation to a class or a group and offer to meet someone? This is what I believe. I believe God could use our church in this way. I'm not scolding. I'm encouraging. Because I realize, I realize some things coming together, and that is God is sending people the way of Ogletown, and God has already equipped our church to meet those people. But it won't be because of a building, and it won't be because of a website, and it won't be because of a staff. It'll be because of a whole church family. Says God, what an amazing privilege we have of caring for people. Will we have the attitude of Jesus and move toward people? Or will we settle into kind of a, eh, whoever comes, comes. Whoever gets connected, gets connected. I don't know that's really my role on that. If you're a part of Ogletown, you have a role in that. Notice who he notices and finally look for Jesus at work. Look for God at work. I was so convicted this week because I thought, where am I like that synagogue ruler? that all, all I'm worried about is like my to-do list and my calendar. And my kind of going through the motions, going through the rhythms, going through the routines, that I may not know if God himself showed up in student ministry or God himself showed up with that, that person that, that came that I got to meet. Where, where would I be so blind? Where would it be? What would prevent me from seeing God at work? Where would I have spiritual calluses on my heart where I just, I, I didn't really care anymore if God was at work? Where do I put people in categories? Are there ways in which I attempt to block the path of people who need God's work in their life? Where do I make my walk with God more about rituals and rules and not spiritual awareness? Where do I really hunger for the spiritual freedom of others, those that may find Jesus Christ as their Savior? And and I'm not just like vaguely interested in that, but I'm hungry for that. I want that to happen at Ogletown. I want it to happen this fall. I want it to happen at the end of August, in the beginning of September. Where, Where do we live with such a hunger to, to help those who are fighting through ad- addictions that they will need all of our prayers and all of God's grace to help them find hope and accountability in that. Where do I see God at work in someone growing someone? And it may be small steps, but they grow through pain or they grow through struggles. They grow through loss. Where do I see God at work as someone finally finds like, this is what I'm called to do. This is why God put me on the planet. Where do I see God at work as is there are those that are fighting sexual temptation when all the culture presses to, to say, you don't really have to follow God's way uh, of doing sex and relationships, but they're fighting and they're, they're staying in that struggle and they're, they're seeing God give victory even, even as they're, they're struggling and wrestling with defeat. Where will we see God at work? Where will we be hungry for it as a church? To where we, we cannot really even stomach a month where we don't see God at work 
in tangible ways, showing himself mighty. And we rejoiced like all the people did. Just interesting, this, uh, this summer, our rhythms as a family change. Summer has a way of doing that. And I noticed when we ate dinner, became later and later. I noticed something corresponding with that. Like the later we ate dinner as a family, it seemed like the hungrier everybody was. It seemed like the Clean Plate Club had a lot more members this summer. This dinner became later and later. And we as a family were hungrier and hungrier. What I'm praying today is that God would do something this fall in our church family and give us a hunger for our own encounter with Jesus and to bring others to have an encounter with Jesus. And that hunger would intensify and would not just be something we feel in our heart, but would move us toward people maybe like never before. Can I ask you to bow your head? I'd like to give us just space to think about what God may be encouraging us toward. Asking the Lord to increase our hunger for him, our desire for him. morning we're not going to end in uh, singing today I'm going to ask Al Demers to come and close us kind of voice a, a prayer for all of us to grow in our hunger if you need to talk to someone there will be, be friends available right up front love to have that conversation I'll be in the back if you need to talk to someone about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ I hope you'll do that. I hope you won't let the day pass without doing that. But Al, if you could lead us in a prayer, I'd appreciate it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy and your grace towards us. Lord, we ask that you would continue to encourage us, inspire us, and challenge us us through your word. Father, we ask that you would make us hungry and thirsty for your righteousness. Lord, and as we leave this place and embrace the mission field that you've placed us in, Lord, help us to be sensitive and obedient to your spirit. Lord God, that we would be able to love others well, to be your hands and your feet. Father, that we would live in a way to show your love and mercy to others, Father, that they would see Jesus in us. Father, to be your hands and your feet is an amazing privilege, Lord, and ask that you would continue to help us to encounter you, to be aware of your presence in our lives. Father, that we would live in a way to bring you glory and praise, and we thank you and ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.